Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we bring you conversations with experts in fields relating to urban farming and dive in a little deeper into some of the important issues of our time. Today, we're chatting with our seed expert, Bill McDormand, as he shares some seed wisdom and discusses thoughts and concerns that might occupy the minds of those of us who are saving seeds. Welcome to the show today, Bill. Hello, hello, everyone. Happy to be here. Thank you for being here. I was thinking over the past couple of weeks, we haven't like visited in on the basics of why save seeds in probably a long time. And I think we've been doing these webinars for four years. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I know. I, I, I think it's been four years, which is ultra cool think of it so if you're young out if you're young out there and you're thinking about going to college and you think oh my gosh four years you know the other side of that is greg and i you know all of a sudden four years just went by it goes so fast it does go fast it does go fast so we're gonna jump right in and talk about why save seeds and i'm just gonna toss this over to you and uh let you run with it and i'll jump in when i can well, I'm looking forward to this. It's kind of a challenge in one way for me because I feel like it's a no-brainer. You know, I fell into seeds and seed saving when I was in college. I was in my early 20s, and I thought I would be involved in helping find seeds for my own garden and thus the community I was living in. And I thought we I ended up um, with a group of people starting a nonprofit. And to make sure that they would be available. And out of that, we started a little seed company even to make sure that things would be available for people. This was, uh, the company was Garden City Seeds and it was Missoula, Montana in 1979. And I thought it was going to go. Yeah. I thought it was going to be like a three year project and then I would get (laughs) on with my life. You know, I was like everyone else. It's a modern, you know, I wanted to go to law school. You know, there's all sorts of things I wanted to do. And so. And it just has been so powerful and so compelling and so rewarding that I just never got back out of it. And so for me at this point in my life to try to explain to people why, you know, I have to sit down and think about it a little bit. Right. Because it's just been so apparent to me. I mean, in one way, I've got way more stories about the amazing things I've seen along the journey, the things that have Mm -hmm. kept me involved. but. On the other hand, how do you convince modern people, you know, that are on the path that I was on, that this is worth taking a detour, at least for a little while around? So, well, and people I don't know that, have to necessarily dive in as deep as you do or did. Right. Uh, you know, it can be saving seeds can be as simple as buying open pollinated seeds or heirloom seeds and letting them go to seed in your yard and letting them come back year after year after year like they do here at the urban farm. Right. That's what, you know, and I love your story about the basil, especially Mm -hmm. that, you know, it doesn't take expertise. In some ways, it just takes an attitude shift. And so maybe that's what we'll work on tonight. It's just, you know, getting people reacquainted with this idea that it's actually happening all around us all the time. 
usually seeds are being saved then you know the plants are doing it themselves they're you know they're um self sowing and volunteer plants if anybody's gardened at all we all um there's myths about large and small about how uh volunteer plants are always better always stronger they know when oh, to yeah. plant themselves how to grow you know so so often people discover tomatoes in their compost pile or or something that planted themselves, and it ends up being the best thing that they do that year. So, you know, just learning to recognize that that is actually part of your seed saving yeah. adventure. It's just well, I it's not that you did anything, but it's just that you learned to recognize that, you know, and, and, right. and glean a few of the seeds. Yeah. I have an interesting thing going on here at the Urban Farm that happens every year, and it's nothing I plan. It's now, I've now been at the Urban Farm for 30 years, and I'm going to say 28 years ago, we planted nasturtiums in the front yard. And nasturtiums are notorious, especially here in the lower desert, for reseeding themselves. So they, you know, they go into the summer and they get burned out in the summer and make seeds and drop the seeds that stay in the mulch in my garden beds. And then they re-sprout in, uh, you know, November, December when it gets cold. And the really cool thing, yeah, the really cool thing that's happened and this is what I didn't plan, was in the gap when the nasturtiums aren't thriving, mm-hmm. the cowpeas are. So my front beds always have something growing in them, no matter what year, what time of year they are or what wow. time of year it is. Right. The cowpeas take over when the nasturtiums are done and the nasturtiums take over when the cowpeas are done. And cowpeas are nitrogen fixers, so they're pulling nitrogen out of the air and out of the soil. And then I just fold the nasturtiums and the cowpeas back into the garden bed and they become next year's mulch. Self-replicating, self-seeding uh, guild. <laughs> yeah, fruit-producing, yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's a long time. Back at you, 30 years. Yeah, my gosh, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's what, you know, so if you have no time and have had little interest in seed saving up to this point, just keep that in mind, that all you have to do is change your attitude and start looking for seeds. You know, as right. we say in our seed schools, every flowering plant produces seeds. Mm-hmm. So where are they? You don't have to even recognize or identify the plant. And you can find it in most any season in and around the plant, there'll be some seeds. Seeds that have dried up from the year before, plants that are just coming up or whatever. And so just by being curious, you can take a, a dive back into the this incredible ritual we call seed saving. And so yeah. that's it. You can just start to learn to recognize it. And then once you do, you can start to use it. And that can give you um, all sorts of benefit, other benefits. And so, you know, and we can talk about some of those as we go on this evening. I want to encourage everybody to ask questions. You know, as I like to say, the most important gardening and seed questions are yours. They're yeah. specific to your situation and your yard. Those are the ones that will get you down the road furthest. So don't be embarrassed. Just ask something that's bothering you or something that you need to have answered. Those are the best questions, and we'll get to as many of those as we can. Yeah, and I like to remind people because some people call to, come to me and say, well, maybe this is a stupid question. And I contend that there is no such thing as a stupid question except those that aren't asked. So... Please jump in. Good. You know, yeah. we. I still. Get, I still feel embarrassed, though. You know, when I show up in a new group of people, whether they're bird watchers or cyclists, you know, and I don't know the them, and I don't know the whole drill yet. I'm a newbie, sort of. Mm-hmm. It's hard to ask questions. You know, you don't want to embarrass yourself. Yeah. So I understand that part. But we'll we'll use humor and get over that tonight. So yeah. hopefully. Hey, Tahara, I see you're uh, threw up a hand. You actually have to type the questions into. Uh, in the live event, you, which is right, you know, today, uh, type the questions in on the web interface. So let's, I already mentioned heirloom seeds. Let's kind of distinguish that so people know that right out of the chute. Well, that's the easiest place to start with seeds. You know, our modern um, agriculture, because of its need for uniformity and predictability and its need to make sure that you buy your seeds every year, that's a market need. Nobody likes to sell you a product that they and you can use to produce all your own new products and give away to your friends. That just doesn't make sense for most business people. So, so we have developed what we call hybrid seeds, and that are uh, make it a little bit more difficult, a little more playful. If you want to save seeds from them, you can save seeds from anything. 
but whether or not you'll get a useful product right away is is all that's to be determined. And if you're a small backyard gardener, you can get something useful almost immediately. It's just farmers on larger scales, market gardeners, that have to be careful of trying to save seeds from from industrial uh, hybrid varieties. And so the seed saving movement that ex- that's exploding, especially in the United States, where they, there's maybe over 400 seed libraries that have come about in the last 10 years in the United States. These are largely populated with, as you call them, uh, Greg, heirloom or non-hybrid seeds. These are ones that, you know, these are this is all the stuff we had before the Green Revolution. Some of these are great, what we call land races. They're adapted to certain conditions in certain places. They bring incredible uh, resilience and diversity into your yard. All you have to do is save the seed. And some of the some of the plants that we have in our gardens are even easier. They're um, self-pollinating plants. We call them selfers. And those don't even, uh, or rarely, or it's more difficult for them to cross-pollinate with other plants. And this is a big fear, I know, for home gardeners. They go, oh my gosh, what if I make a mistake? What if my neighbor's um, plants cross with mine and then I try to right. save season? I don't know what I have. And so if you start with heirloom or open-pollinated or as we call non-hybrid seeds, you don't have to worry about uh, not getting something you can use the first year. And if you use self-pollinating plants, and I will tell you which ones those are, you don't even have to worry about them cross-pollinating. And and some of the plants you can even eat and save the seeds, which is pretty amazing. It's like there's no trade-off at all. It's win-win. And so it's um, peas, beans, tomatoes, peppers, and lettuce are the most popular garden vegetables that are self-pollinating. So there's really no reason why people shouldn't just save those. I mean, you can get enough seeds, as we say on this program often, um, maybe for your own garden for the rest of your life out of one tomato plant. And, you know, and so if you have two or three, if you're growing tomato to eat for the summer, man, what a deal. And if you end up with way too many tomato seeds, you can take them down to your new seed library and share them with your community. And so you can see how this gets to be a bountiful activity. So yeah, just think about that. That's an easier place to start. You know, for your more experienced gardeners, hybrid you can save seeds from hybrids. And there's a lot of incredible traits that have been sold only to home gardeners as hybrids. Some disease resistances, say, especially in tomatoes, uh, curly top and late blight, which are starting to hit some areas of the country now. And so you can save seeds from those and plant them. And so you won't necessarily get tomatoes that looked exactly like the ones that you had planted the years before. We call this Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Um, there's right. all sorts of recessive traits that could start to resurface. However, some of them will be like the ones that you like, and some of them might, you might like even better. And so as long as you're in the backyard and playful and you can eat everything you grow anyway, why not? I, this is one of the, the other revolutions that's starting to happen in gardening is gardeners are figuring out that we can save seeds from hybrids and uh, we can make them our own and we can have fun doing it and introduce new diversity into our own backyards and our communities and maybe gain some of the re- disease resistance that we're going to need. So that's an exciting uh, development. Yeah. Well, I think there's one of the kind of the more the bigger cultural umbrellas here as why to save seeds really started a hundred years ago when there were so many varieties of seeds out there and now there's not you want to speak to that well you know so you can do it for your own life in your own backyard and you can make um, things easier and better gardening wise i could argue that all day but you're also participating in a global activity that's very very important and that it's based on, you know, an ecological principle that the more diversity you have, the more you're going to be able to weather the storms and the changes that we're now facing. Mm-hmm. And that's so, you know, on a really simple way of talking about this is that if you've got an older heirloom variety or uh, that has more diversity in it itself and or access to lots of different varieties of things. And we're doing this now with the grains. We're, uh, we're going to plant maybe 60. Uh, in fact, I got off the phone yesterday with a young man at the uh, Occidental Arts and Ecology Center in California, and he put together a Grex of 2,000 different wheats. These are all bread wheats, modern wheats, 
but uh-huh. they've got 2,000 different varieties that were somewhat adapted to their climate in California and just mixed them all up and planted them. And uh, around this idea that diversity is good, that we're going to need diversity to face climate change. And so right. so what happens? So the first year in California, they have fires and it's hot and it's drought. And so the drought tolerant varieties make it. This next year, they have floods and too much rain and moisture and rain at weird times. And the drought, uh, the flood tolerant varieties make it. And so you can see how diversity could help you because if you only plant one variety, it may not have made it in either of those summers. Yeah. Because they were so weird. And so that, so when you begin to save seeds in your own backyard and begin to adapt things to the conditions that you have where you are, you are um, changing it. And by changing it, you're helping to create new diversity. Now, you may not have enough diversity in that one variety to get you through, but somebody else may need some of your diversity somewhere else. And so collectively, we need to get back about 90% of what we lost in the last couple of generations just to get back to where we were and hope and pray that that's enough to make it into the future for our children and grandchildren. Yeah, that's a big piece of the conversation that goes on with, in my mind, and I don't have any kids, but I know a lot of my friends do, and I know a lot of you listening out there have kids, and it, and what, you know, what happens for me is, what do we do for them? What's really cool is that you can get into seed saving, you can make a difference in your own yard by adapting crops to your yard by saving the seeds year after year from the plants that do best for you. So mm-hmm. you're so not only are you getting something that you like, that tastes the way you want it, that works better in your yard, so it's easier for you, but then you're participating in this larger activity where we're all coming back to the land and we're doing that collectively so that we will have more diversity. You know, so that we don't have to depend upon a seed vault up in Norway just in case, but that we have diversity the way it should be, the way it's always been. It's embedded in living systems in our communities. That's really cool to feel like you're working on that for your grandkids. And then you can save seeds from your tomato and you can name it after your granddaughter (laughs) and give her some of the seeds. How cool is that? You know, and so this, these are the kinds of loops and, you know, multiple levels that have kept me involved in seed saving. Mm-hmm. It's practical, you know, it's important climatically, it's emotional because you got your kids involved with it and you're giving them a gift that's priceless, something that they'll remember you for. I mean, it just has so much to offer. Well, and it's fun. I mean, and it's I fun. Can the, I can hear the fun in your voice and you've... You know, you've turned it into a uh, really a lifetime passion. Yeah, you know, I, it's nothing I really turned. You know, it just sort of grabbed me. <laughs> it's kind and of, in yeah. fact, one, one, one of the things that we talk about in seed school is that the real danger in all of this isn't that, you know, oh, no, this is another thing I took on. And, oh, I was so excited in the beginning, but it's just too much work and I never followed through. You know, and it's just another one of those broken promises to myself or things that I was going to learn to do or whatever. I mean, you know, the real danger is that you're going to get so into this, you're going to stop doing other things, Mm -hmm. that this will swallow you. We have numerous examples of seed stewards in our network at the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. And you can find them on our webpage at RockyMountainSeeds.org. And under resources, go to Seed Stewards. And the seed steward directory, and you can pull up a map of all these people that are around the world now, and you can click on the the map on the little dots, and their uh, contact information will come up, and you can read about what they're growing and saving. Mm-hmm. And some of those seed stewards, and it's more than I'd like to admit, probably, or they would like to admit, are just nuts over this. Their <laughs> regular lives have been hurt. Because they are so into seed saving now and taking care of things. It just sort of multiplied on them. So I would say that's more of a danger when you get into seed savings. Not that, you know, it's going to be a hump to get over to get into it. It's going to be, you're, you're going to have a hard time getting out like, like it has happened to me or Joseph Lofthouse, who's a great seed steward from Utah or Thumbs Heath, who's another one from Idaho. Some of the people that I met on this path. Well, and it, you know, it just turns into fun. 
So tell me, what is the process of seed saving? How does one do it? <laughs> well, hold on to your hat. As we start, the easiest level, as we said, is just to go out into your yard and see where it's happening already and engender that. I've got arugula going to seed in my yard that's been growing and self-seeding itself for 10 years. And so, and I just mowed the yard, and so mm -hmm. I mowed around it. I just left that area because I know it's going to go to seed soon, and it'll start to dry out. And if I do that, then I'll have arugula all next winter again. I won't have to plant it. And now I've got extra arugula. This is 10-year Cornville, Arizona adapted arugula seed. And it's phenomenal. So that's the first level of seed saving. You know, the second level to get into it is to pick one of the easiest plants. You know, mm -hmm. first of all, realize that there's no real cult of, there is a cult of expertise around seeds. It's like everything else. Oh, you can't do this. You need to get a college degree. You need to get one of those big $30 books. You need right. to, you know, learn, learn Latin because some of the books are, the best seed saving books are organized by plant families and those are Latin names and so there's all this stuff out there and and really you don't have to do any of that. All you have to do is pick one of your favorite vegetables that is self-pollinating if you can, if you really want to make this easy and 80% uh, of Americans say tomatoes are their favorite vegetable. Right. They're the, gate, yeah, exactly. they're the gate, gateway drug to gardening and so pick your favorite vegetable. If, if it's other than tomato, you've got peppers, peas, beans, and lettuce. Who doesn't like lettuce? Right. And start saving seeds from it. Pick one thing and start the adventure. And it's pretty simple that way. So You're all of those things just produce their seeds in the same year. And it's hard not to save them <laughs> if you just let them go to seed. So, yeah. so if you were going to save seeds from a tomato, what might that look okay. like? Well, uh, tomatoes, there you can um, just squeeze out seeds. Say you're in a restaurant somewhere and you bite into the best tasting tomato you've ever had. Assuming it's not been cooked. Assuming it's not been cooked. Although, you know, seeds are pretty resilient. <laughs> I don't know. If it's really good, I would probably even take seeds out of a cooked one just to see. Yeah. But, yeah, if there's raw tomato, um, and just you could squeeze seeds out on a napkin and take them home. Be sure you write on it if you want to. If you want to get more proper about it, there's what we call the wet seeded method, where you can cut a ripe tomato at the equator. And by that, I mean, you know, the, if the top of the tomato where the little stem is the North Pole, cut it in half at what would be called the equator and squeeze all that jelly stuff out with the seeds in it. And if you do that carefully, you can still eat the tomato and still slice it up on your salad or whatever. And then take that jelly stuff and put it in a jar. I usually do three or four tomatoes so I get enough of it. If not, I'll put a little bit of water in there and I'll just let it set for three or four days. And what happens is part of a magical natural process where both yeast and fungus break down that jelly, uh, treat those seeds for all known seed-borne diseases, separate them from all the chaff because the seeds then are released from the jelly and they'll float to the bottom. And everything else will be easy to pour off the top in three or four days. And you'll always see sort of this white mold. When it's ready, you'll see this white mold form on the top of the jar. We have got a little brochure called uh, Death by Tomatoes at the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. I'm trying to think of how you could access that. That shows you all the pictures and how to do this. And there are multiple other places. Um, also, I've got a little booklet I wrote in 1992 called Basic Seed Saving that's got the instructions to do this. But basically, after three or four days, you just water winnow them, we call it. You just fill that jar full of water and all the bad stuff floats to the top, good seeds on the bottom, pour all the bad stuff off. Be sure not to pour off those little seeds out of the bottom. Mm -hmm. Fill the jar up with water again. You won't get it totally clean the first time. Fill it up again. Repeat the process. After two or three times, you have perfectly clean seeds in the bottom of a jar with a little bit of water. Just pour that through a screen. So the water's gone. Turn that screen upside down on a paper towel or a paper plate. Write down the name of it and the year and let it dry for three or four days. And you'll have a little tomato cookie, I call them. And you can break that apart and you've got your tomato seeds. So pretty simple process. Yeah, it really is that simple. Yeah, and it's so abundant. As oh. I said, once you can get um, two or three or four hundred seeds out of one tomato plant. Mm -hmm. One tomato. Right. Depending on if it's a big beaver or something, you think about how many tomato plants you're going to have time to grow in your small backyard. You're like <laughs> right. me for the rest of your life. You know, I'm going to be 65 this year. You know, I don't have that many gardens left. 
<laughs> you know, when you think about it that way, it's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. I'm, yeah, be, yeah. Care, be careful what you plant. Get started early. Right, right. So we've got some great questions here, at least a couple of them. Uh, Richard from VeteransToFarmers.org, welcome. He's in Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, it's not a question, but it's a statement. It says, resistance is futile. You will be demolated. <laughs> he says, keep up the good work, guys. Thank you for that, Richard. Uh, Terry from Glendale says, what is the best way to store saved seeds from year to year? You want to jump in on that one? Yeah, that's the most asked question over the course of yeah, what I've been doing. First of all, I, I want to say hi to Rich. Thanks for... Thanks, buddy, for listening. He has fallen head over heels. He's another guy. And he's <laughs> um, now he's teaching veterans how to farm, how to garden as an incredible grounding. It's just a beautiful organization, Veterans to Farmers, Colorado, no, Fort Collins, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, find them online, support them. It's just an incredible thing. And now teaching these guys how to save their own seeds, which gives yeah. them that epic, larger mission in life, right? We're not just feeding people. We're not going from protectors to producers. We're saving the whole damn future by producing enough diversity through seed saving that we're going to all make it together. It's just a beautiful program. So I just had to say that real quick. Um, yeah, well, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you real quick. I'm on their website right now. This is a pretty cool website. Yeah. It is veterans to farmers.org. So go check it out. Thank you, Rich, for that. He's one of the graduates of our seed school teacher training programs, and I'm going to talk a little about that. Because if you really get into this, we can make you really dangerous. Huh, Rich? (laughs) Right. So so anyway. Terry wants to know the best way to save seeds from year to year. Cool, dark, dry. Simple. Keep it simple. Make it fun. You can get really complicated. You can buy equipment. You can get thermometers. Uh, you can uh, pay attention to humidity, and it's probably not necessary. I don't know where you're living, but um, if you're anywhere in Glendale, arid west, yeah. don't worry. If you're going to bag them up, you know, so by cool, I mean keep them below 80 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the operational temperature at which seeds really start to die off faster. Below that, they'll last for decades in many cases. Cooler the better. If you want to put them in a refrigerator, put them in something that will seal them from moisture. Glass um, Ziploc bags, yeah, Ziploc bags will not do that over the long term. So you need something more. Glass jars work. They make um, really nice hard plastic jars. We had those at, when I was the director at Native Seed Search. So you can use those, but if you're going to do that, store them on a uh, dry sunny day don't you know be packing up your seeds on the only rainy day that phoenix has in a month long period you know when the humidity's up wait till it's dry and then um, bag them up and then keep them out of the sun that's basically what dark means we have so many stories here in the southwest of seeds lasting well you know we keep finding them in in pueblos in clay pots, in archaeological digs, seeds that still work. There's lots of stories out there. And how were they stored? Cool, dark, and dry. They were in clay, usually, that helped keep them dry, usually in uh, kivas or in places that were, you know, where the temperature was moderated by the ground. Root cellars are the way, that's what I want, you know. If I could uh, have a wish this Christmas, it would be a new root cellar. You know, because 55 degrees is what the the dirt will keep your seeds just down a couple of feet. So that that might be one way of thinking about it. We're big fans of community um, backup seed storage so that all the people in the community, all the people in Glendale, maybe all the people in Mesa get together and they have a backup of their new varieties that they're saving. The ones they're going to name after their daughters or granddaughters or whatever. And those are put in a safe place just in case something happens to your house or to your seeds. We don't want to lose anything else. And so those things we can do underground also without a lot of uh, expense. And so we've got plans for uh, a backup seed vault on our, on RockyMountainSeeds.org. Some kind of cool pictures of one that was designed by an architect, Del Bates, in uh, Sun Valley, Idaho, that's actually put together out of off-the-shelf uh, septic tank parts with dirt mm. pushed over the top. So, you know, we can figure out how to do this as a community also. Yeah. Well, and Terry, the, the, the simplest thing I think to do is get yourself a nice one-gallon jar and package your seeds. I usually put them in plastic bags, and I put them in the 
gallon jar and I stick it in the freezer. And, you know, people kind of look at me funny when I say I keep my seeds in the freezer, but that's one of the better places. If you can keep the moisture out, that's one of the better places to keep them. Don't you think, Bill? Oh, oh yeah. And then the only other thing to remember is that when you take them out, let that jar sit in your kitchen or living room until it warms back up again an hour or two. Otherwise, if you take an ice cold jar out of the freezer and open up the lid, all the air from your room is going to go into that jar and any moisture in it is going to condense on the insides of that jar and, and leave moisture in there. Whereas if it's the same temperature and everything's equalized, you won't have to worry about that condensation. So that's just one of the warnings about that. But yeah, cool, dark, and dry. I mean, they say the cooler, the better. You know, if we're storing seeds at 400 degrees below zero in liquid nitrogen at the National Seed Storage Laboratory. So I'm not sure if that's necessary because... You know, I've had seeds. I just germinated some tomato seeds from 1992. Wow. I just I just planted flats for this year for me. I've got about 40 different tomatoes and peppers growing. And the one that germinated first, by far most vigorous, was wow. the tomato from 1992. And I got 90% germ. So, And they haven't been stored in a freezer. They're just stored under my bed, actually. So Cool. So we've got Erica on the line from Milwaukee. She says, I'm a new seed steward in Wisconsin through RMSA, Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. And I'm curious about the momentum of the seed movement from both of you. I listen to your podcast, the Urban Farm Podcast, and I hear lots of interviews from Pacific Southwest. But I'm curious if you feel there is much movement in the Midwest or East Coast. She's in from Milwaukee. Thoughts? You would know this, Bill. Oh, yeah. I just looked. If you go to the... Rocky Mountain Sea Lions website, sounds like you're familiar with it. And under the resource menu, go down to Seed Steward, and the, there'll be a submenu called Search Directory, and the Seed Steward Directory will come up, and there'll be a button that says Search. Push that, and then it'll say there are uh, 1 uh, through 50 of 271 seed stores come up. and But you'll see a little place that says Map These Contacts. Click on that. I'm doing this as I say it and look where they are. <laughs> and it's about half of the 271 seed stores that the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance has attracted. I'd say maybe not quite 40% of them are in the Midwest and East Coast. So that, and you can click on any one of those um, icons and get the name and email of the people that's represented there. So if you can zone into Wisconsin where you are, there's a, quite a few people there. Let me zoom in here and look. I mean, it's incredible. We've got like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven seed stores in Wisconsin. You know, that's almost more than we have in Idaho. <laughs> Just to give you a contrast. And the other thing that you have to remember, and this is something that was surprising to me, but I, I've come to believe it, is that in Appalachia, all the way down into southern Appalachia, there are more varieties of vegetables, more heirloom and heritage varieties of vegetables than any other place in the United States that need to be rediscovered and restored and brought back out and taken to seed libraries and seed exchanges. Many of these still aren't in any catalog. There's no way for people to find them. And so really the richest treasure chest to do this is probably in Appalachia. And so that's um, something you could think about. I believe that, you know, we just did our, our seed summit in New Mexico because that's the oldest you know, agriculture on the continent is in Arizona and New Mexico. You know, the Hopi go back a thousand years in the same place. And so if you want to get into old, old varieties and things, then um, talk to the seed stewards that live in and around the Southwest. But I'm, I'm trying to paint a picture for you. The momentum is everywhere. This is happening all over the world. We have been invited to go to Rome, I, hopefully. We have yet to get the official invitation, but tentatively invited to go to Rome, you know, to present about the movement that we're just a part of here in the Mountain West because there are people all over doing the same thing we're doing, and they want us to represent this new grassroots and seed steward-fueled seed-saving in Rome, you know, with people from all over the world, so... That'll be exciting. But yeah, there's lots of momentum. And so we did a seed school in Wisconsin. And I, I'm trying to remember the name. Is it Ash Springs? 
I try to remember the name of the town and maybe by the time we get off the air, I'll do it. But there were, you know, that was really an exciting thing. And I was really amazed at how many people in and around Lake Superior, especially are trying to get off the grid and learn how to grow their own food again. And those are the conditions for a really great and vibrant seed stored movement. So I'll leave it at that. Cool. There we go. So Tahara Ward from Phoenix says, we're beginners in, gar- in gardening, and they want to know who to talk to about soil samples. Is that soil testing in your yard, Tahara? Here in Phoenix, there is an organization called IAS Labs. She's actually been on our podcast. Her name is Sherry. But if you look up IAS Labs on the internet, they'll uh, I'm sure they'll come up. Helen from Scottsdale. Oh, Helen, you're so funny. She says, I'm really old at 83. I don't think so. I do, I do get the slowing down part, though. She says, and I'm slowing down. Heck, I'm 58 years old, and I'm slowing down already. She wants to know who she can leave her seeds that she has saved to. Any thoughts Ooh. on that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, um, five years ago, that would have been a real problem in right. some ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I, in some ways, you know, in my career over 40 years, I, I call it the hot potato syndrome. You know, nobody wants the hot potato. I mean, because taking someone's seeds is a huge responsibility. Yeah. You know, if you if you know and love the person, you know that they've been growing and saving their own seeds for a while, all that they put into it, all the love or whatever, and somebody gives them to you. Oh, now what? You know, this has happened to me several times. And so that's why we're real big fans of seed exchanges and seed libraries. And so I know there are, I've heard of at least three libraries down there in the valley that have gotten going from time to time. And seed libraries sometimes have fits and starts or whatever, but maybe, Greg, you can help with with contacts with those. Because that would be the best thing to do is give them to a seed library or take them to a seed exchange that's right there in your area. And those are the people that are excited about seed saving anyway. These will be the people that get it. These will be the people most likely to follow through and actually do something with your seeds. Yeah. You mean kind of like Mrs. Burns' lemon basil? Yeah. Yeah. Mrs. What? Burns' lemon basil. What's that you know, story? That was, well, that was uh, early 1900s. Barney Burns who was a professor at University of Arizona and one of the co-founders of Native Seed Search. His mother, when she moved to Tucson, brought her basil. I'm not going out there without my basil (laughs) and started growing it and started saving the seeds because there was no other place to get the seeds and started passing them around the neighborhood. And, and, uh, you know, almost a hundred, more than a hundred years later, Mrs. Burns lemon basil is actually in seed catalogs all over the country. Johnny selected seeds even sells Mrs. Burns lemon basil. And it's in uh, Native Seed Search has it. And it's in the Pima County Seed Library now, which has about... I don't know, 50,000 packets of seeds a year checked out. Oh, my out. God. Wow. And over, and over half of those seeds now are being checked back in by the people that have learned how to grow and save them. So this is the kind of system that we need to get up and running everywhere. And that's why I'm such a big fan for it. So yeah. I will look. There is, uh, all else fails to answer your question. My Our good, our dear friend, Rebecca Newburn, uh, maintains a website, seedlibraries.net. And on that, website there is under one of the pull down i think it's her resource tab there's on the menus there's a sister seed libraries item and if you'll pull that up she has a directory to a 600 seed libraries around the world and you can search for the ones in arizona i haven't done that lately and that might help you find uh, which ones are uh, located and operational in Arizona, and that might be one of the things you could do. And so let's see, these are great questions. Yeah, so I want to jump into Seed School. What is Seed School, Seed School Online? And then you've got a grain school coming up that I want you to share about. Yes, Seed School is um, our attempt to grow this movement. If we're really going to make it into the future and we've lost 90% of the diversity, we are going to need literally millions of seed savers. That's the only way this will work. No top-down institution, as I like to say, no centralized thing is going to be able to create and steward and save the kind of diversity, even a fraction of the diversity that we used to have. However, if we had a million new seed savers 
saving seeds and sharing them with the people around them, we could recreate this in a relatively sh short period of time. It's got to be grassroots. And so in order to do that, to see that dream, this far-fetched dream come about, a necessary dream, I'll call it also, we need to teach a lot of people how to do this right away. And so we started seed school. And now our seed schools, we've graduated more than a 1,000 people from our schools that have gone on to start dozens of seed libraries and seed exchanges. We've got, as I was talking earlier, we've got 271 seed stewards on, on our website that you can tap into instantly for free and figure out if there's somebody near you that could help you or somebody that's doing carrots that's far away from you, whatever it is that you need. And so we occasionally do seed schools. It started as a six-day program. We broke it down into a one-day program we call Seed School in a Day. And we still do those. In fact, we're going to do one of those in Prescott in May, I believe, this year. I Maybe I can pull that up before the show's over. And then working with you, Greg, we developed, um, we even condensed that down and came up with Seed School Online for people that can't travel to one of our seed schools. And so that was a real exciting uh, breakthrough. And I can't tell you, Greg, how many people come up to me now and go, oh, yeah, I did seed school. And I'm looking in their eyes and their face and I don't <laughs> remember them. And it's because they did seed school online. Yeah. And I've had a, numerous people tell me it's changed their lives, you know, and that's what we're that's what it's set up to do. We didn't change their lives. Seeds will change their lives. We just got to be an entry point for you. And so I've got about 40 years experience trying to get people to save seeds. That was boiled down, as I said, into a six-day program. That was boiled down further into a one-day, distilled into a one-day program. And then the very best of that, all of that experience was put into seven online webinar lectures that you can download and go through at your leisure. So that's Seed School Online. Now, is that going to be enough? No. So we started doing seed school teacher training. The idea is to train teachers to go out. And we've had four of these classes now, these trainings, and we have trained a 100 seed teachers, right? Rich, who um, we talked about earlier, was one of those students. And now he teaches his own seed schools. We just heard about this year a southern seed school in Gainesville, Florida, will take place in April. One of our students in Colorado, in Hotchkiss, Colorado, um, just sold out their seed school. Colorado, uh, 44 students. Nice. Place over the summer. And so this is starting to work. Now, if you're interested in that, we just actually got a grant from the Lush Foundation. It's called Expanding Seed Saving Exponentially. And so we have money to help you if you want to be a seed teacher and want to get up and running and start teaching your own seed school classes. We're gonna, we have help with reg registration portal. We have help. You can use our, um, PowerPoint presentation. We ask that you modify them some so that they're yours and that you give us credit. But, you know, the idea is to get this out there and around the country and the world as quickly as possible. And so, uh, it looks like we're organizing to do another seed school teacher training. Seed school slash seed school teacher training in October at the Posner Center nice. in Denver again. And I think those dates are up now on our website or proposed dates. So you can look for those. And so, and then we also have a grain school. One of the things we've learned is that since we eat, well, there's a couple of things that came together. 80% of what we eat are grains, either grains that feed animals or grains we eat directly. And we've got this great local food movement now going. It doesn't have seeds yet, so that's what our seed schools are for. And so uh, we want people to grow and garden and save seeds from grains because unbelievably, when I first found this out, most of our important grains are self-pollinating. They're in that easiest of easy seed-saving category. And it used to be people garden grains. Ralph Bush, Dr. Ralph Bush at the Air Force Academy in uh, Colorado Springs figured up he gets about seven loaves of bread worth of grain out of one 100-square-foot bed. We'll put that in your backyard bed. This is a John Jevons-sized bed. Yep. And so, wow, seven loaves of bread. You don't need that many beds to have a loaf of bread every other week. You know, and can you imagine what it tastes like to grow and save your own einkorn, which is the oldest grain, and then mill it yourself and bake it into a fresh loaf of bread? 
This is the fresh flower movement. This is local grain. This is what our grain schools are for. And so we've got a grain school coming up uh, April 12th through the 14th in Cottonwood, Arizona. We have another one coming up in July in Albuquerque, in New Mexico. Let me, I can get you the dates for that real quick. They can go to uh-huh. RockyMountainSeeds.org for that, right? Yeah. Right, and you can sign up for these things. It's uh, July 27th, or 26th and 27th. We're partnering with the Museum of Albuquerque to put that on. And we're partnering with the Eco Center in Cottonwood, Arizona, to do the one that's coming up the 12th through the 14th. We've invited Dr. Gary Nabin has said we haven't gotten a confirmation back from him, but we're hoping he'll still come. We've got a fantastic Steve Olson from uh, Flagstaff, who grows grains and is a phenomenal baker is going to uh, help us with the baking class here. We've wow. got a professional kitchen. We've, mm-hmm. been a, uh, we've invited the folks from uh, Sanawa Malting, which is in uh, Camp Verde, Arizona. These are malsters to talk about the new barley crops right. and the barley grind that we're doing here in the valley for local breweries. And that's going to be part of it. Uh, wow. So if you have any interest in any part of the what we call the grain chain, if you want to grow them yourselves, you want to learn how to harvest and save them, you want to learn how to breed them, you want to learn how to grind them, bake them, make pizzas or bread, or brew them into beer. We're going to talk about all of that and have people here that have experience with it. Wow. So this will be your entry into a life-changing experience. So that's imagine, what grade school Imagine jumping in and taking any classes from Bill. Uh, I've done many <laughs> classes with Bill and He's, uh, he's this, this passionate through it all. You can also get online. We have Seed School Online and a free webinar called Seed Saving Hacked. So if you go to Seed Saving Hacked, H-A-C-K-E-D, hacked.org, seedsavinghacked.org, you can find out more about that. So where can people find you at, Bill? I am at RockyMountainSeeds.org. Um, the website, you can get to me through that or Bill at RockyMountainSeeds.org. If you have questions about the seed schools or about helping us expand seed saving exponentially, again, we're going to have some money through a grant to help people get down the road to do this. Uh, email Bell, B-E-L-L-E, at RockyMountainSeeds.org. She's our deputy director. If you have questions about grains and want to get involved in our grain trials pro- program, we have over 100 now grain trial trialists, we call it. They're seed stores that are focusing on grains. And we have about 285 different heritage and ancient grains that we've found, varieties. You can't find many of these anywhere else. Yep. We'll, Leanne will get with you, Leanne, L-E-E-A-N-N at RockyMountainSeeds.org. She'll get with you and figure out what uh, will grow best where you are, and you can uh, start changing your life by growing grains right away in your own backyard. So those and, are three and you um, can, important entry points. Yeah, you can actually grow your own grains. You can do it. I've watched Bill do it. Last time I was up there, I had some bread that you had made, and I think we made flour tor- or uh, corn tortillas as well. Yeah, we're doing corn tortillas. We're doing white Sonora wheat tortillas, which is the 400-year-old wheat that Father Kino yep. brought to Arizona, which is how they invented the flour tortilla, <laughs> you know, here in Arizona where it was invented. So it's a heritage food. We love that. We're making our own pasta out of durum wheat that's a, uh, known in Italy as semolina, the world's most famous pasta flour. We're growing that right here in the yard. I planted October 15th. My crops are up and looking really good. Hope to harvest in June or July this year. So, Beautiful. wow, it's just endless and it just gets better all the time. The flavor, the nutrition, the, you know, the story. The coolness just, of it. Oh, the cool. If you want cool, cool. If you want to be one of the coolest people on the planet right now, grow some einkorn. 14,000 year old wheat. It's got 40% higher protein unbelievable flavor profile. Grow some of your own einkorn and make a loaf of your own bread out of it and take it to a potluck or to, say, your Thanksgiving dinner with your family and and tell them about it and tell them where it came from. I mean, this is how we're going to find our way back out of all the gut problems and the gluten-free problems that people are having, you know. It's going to be, it's really fun. It's really interesting. We're going to have, you know, we're going to have lectures on both Roundup and on uh, on gluten and gluten intolerance at our grain school. 
So if that's one of the things that's bothering you and you don't want to give up all of the grains, we might be able to help you find a path. And we, um, we that's happened at our other grain schools. We have students now that have had to give up all gluten for a while, maybe a year or two, and then and to heal themselves, but then reintroduce heritage and ancient grains and reintroduce them in the right way with wild yeast sourdough ferment, which seems to have some effect on this. And now we're only using organic grains because there's lots of questions now whether the glyphosate that comes from Roundup that's being found in larger quantities and modern grains isn't some of the problem. And also. Yeah. And that's a story for another day. Thank you very much, Bill, for another great seed chat conversation. Thank you, sir. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit denalicanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's denalicanning.com forward slash free.